Welcome to another edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, the award-winning show covering fishing, hunting, conservation, destinations, and other outdoors recreation across the greater Northwest. Northwestern Outdoors is brought to you by Max Lur, Sportsman's Warehouse, Sina Sea Seafood, and Wallowa County Chamber of Commerce in the Northern Pike Minnow Sport Reward Fishery Program. And now, let's see what's happening this week with your host, John Cruz. Welcome to your Veterans Day weekend edition of Northwestern Outdoors Radio. I'm just going to start things off by thanking all of you listening today who served or are family members of those who served. It's kind of funny that only 1% of Americans serve in the U.S. Armed Forces anymore. Very small percentage of us have done so, and it seems that number continues to dwindle. But for all of you who sacrificed and gave your time and toil and sweat, and in some cases blood, thank you again. It's appreciated. This week on the show, we are going to have an in-depth discussion with Andrew McKean. He is the hunting and conservation editor for Outdoor Life. He wrote what might be the best conservation article I've ever read. It's all about the buffalo, the American bison, and it starts in the 1880s in northeast Montana, the site of the last buffalo hunt, where a taxidermist from the Smithsonian was trying to get hides and schools to at least preserve the memory of the American bison. Since then, The bison have recovered in some ways, but not in others. And there are efforts to restore a large population of bison to prairie grasslands in central and northeast Montana. But those efforts have hit roadblocks with cattle ranchers and politicians. And there's a good reason for this, too. It's a complicated issue. I think you're going to really want to hear all about this and maybe hear about a solution provided not by the state government of Montana or the federal government, but instead the tribes that have reservation land in Montana. So in addition to this two-part segment we're going to have with Andrew McKean, we're also going to talk to Brianna Bruce. She is the owner of Living Life Adventures, also works at the Everett Sportsman's Warehouse in the fishing department. She's been out in western Washington fishing for coho salmon, and she's going to tell you not one, not two, but three different ways to do it. And I'll tell you what, the coho salmon fishing has been very, very good this fall. And then there's our other guest you're going to hear from in just a couple of minutes. That would be outdoors writer Rob Phillips, who during COVID decided to become a novelist. And he launched a series of novels featuring Luke McCain. He is a game warden in Washington State, also known as a Fish and Wildlife Enforcement Officer. And he and his yellow lab jack are out there busting poachers and in some cases some even worse criminals than that. Rob's new book coming out in early December is Creature of the Cascades. And once again, Luke is after not only some poachers, but possibly Bigfoot, too, in a separate storyline. You're going to want to hear about this one. Throw in our Sportsman's Warehouse trivia question of the week and some very good news I'm going to share with you towards the end of the show. And we've got a great show coming your way. So let's get it started with another edition of Sportsman Spotlight with David Sparks. I don't know if you have a hankering for exotic protein, but it can certainly be found in the form of frog's legs, which is what field and stream editor-in-chief Colin Kearns has up his sleeve, in the form of two frog hunters who have been named the Frog Kings. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. These two longtime buddies who live in upstate New York, they both are longtime hunters and fishermen. They've got these cabins next to each other on this river in upstate New York. New York made it legal for outdoorsmen to start hunting and gigging frogs in the evening. So they went out one night and frog hunted, just did really, really well and had the time of their lives. And they just became addicted to it. They've got some really interesting techniques on how they hunt frogs. They do use gigs for some, but their preferred method is to 
to grab them by hand because that allows them to make sure they only get the meatiest and biggest frogs that are on the river. They're on the river from 10 in the evening till about 2, 3 in the morning. And then when they get home, they'll sleep for a couple hours and then they start processing all the legs, butchering them and skinning them. They're not satisfied if they don't take 100 frogs every evening. So they've got a, a lot of work for them waiting, but they love cooking these legs. They bring them to parties and they've even got a recipe for frog legs for breakfast. They batter them in pancake batter and deep fry them and serve them with maple syrup. So breakfast to champions. Breakfast of champions, probably with no fat and no cholesterol. Hmm. You've probably been told that to reach a millennial farmer, you have to go digital. Hmm. Facebook, Vimeo, YouTube, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, an online publication, or maybe a podcast. Hmm. But which one? Oh, and how receptive is this age group to your sales pitch during non-work social time? Maybe the best place to reach a farmer with a farming solution message is when they are, well, quite frankly, farming. You know, it's easy for us to find them during the day as most farmers are behind the wheel of a pickup truck or farm equipment with the radio on listening to this station for the Ag Information Network of the West News. If you'd like to deliver information about your terrific product or service, give us a call and we'll connect you directly with our community of loyal farmer listeners. Reach real farmers right here, right now, as they listen to what is important to their farm operation. They trust us. They'll trust you. David Sparks, Sportsman Spotlight. Public lands and waters are integral to our outdoor heritage. Become a member of Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and stand up for our public lands and waters. Visit backcountryhunters.org today. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio. We're checking in with Rob Phillips. He's a longtime outdoor columnist for the Yakima Herald Republic. He's also a successful book author with the Luke McCain series of novels. But currently, he is in a field hunting pheasant and quail in the Yakima Valley. Rob, welcome to the show. How does the hunt go so far? Hi, John. Yeah, well, we had a little fog this morning, which makes it hard to see pheasants when they get up. So we've been kind of just hunting and pecking around. But we've we've got into three or four bunches of quail, which is fun. But now that the fog's kind of burned off, we're getting a couple of fields where we think there might be some pheasants. So it's been a tough year in the Yakima Valley and for several years, and this year's one of them. There's just not a lot of wild pheasants left around here, which is a shame. I mean, I grew up here hunting birds you know, for the last 50 years, and it's, it's a shame to see this few of birds. But it is what it is, and we get our dogs out, and we have some good exercise. So, No, I understand. Well, thank God there's Montana. I know that's usually an annual trip. Did you do that this year? 
Actually, we got all the way almost to where we hunt. We hunt on a reservation back there, and some kind of disputes arose between some landowners and the tribe, and they shut it down, so we didn't get to hunt. We we hunted some just regular spots, some wildlife management areas and stuff, and found a few birds, but, but we didn't get to hunt where we normally hunt. But we've got deer and elk licenses for back there, so we did some scouting, and we're ready to go back there here in about a week. Well, here's wishing you luck in that regard. Hey, let's Thank talk you. about your latest book. It's another one in the Luke McCain series. Now, you wrote your first one during COVID, and you'd never written a novel before, and you certainly have got the, the novel writing bug because this is your sixth book about Luke McCain and his dog, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes, it's the sixth in the series. Um, they're all standalone books. You don't have to read the first one to to get the sixth one or the fifth one or whatever. But it's all a lot of the same. In my main, my protagonist is a game warden uh, stationed out of Yakima. And he patrols the Cascade. Some of the books of he's ended up clear by the Canadian border or, or around Spokane. So he's traveled around some with his uh, yellow lab jack, and they're catching poachers and murderers and escapees and things like that. And so I've had a lot of fun with it, and people have really taken to it. I've, I've sold thousands and thousands of them. That's what's kind of spurred me on to, to continue to write the novels. The first one was just to see if I could do it, and then it, it gained so many fans, and they wanted the next book. It just kind of spurred me on. So as long as I've got an idea, and it makes sense, and it's realistic, and I can have some fun with it, I'm going to probably just keep writing them. Cause people want them. So. Well, you do a great job of bringing Luke McCain as a game warden to life and the other characters in your book. And being a resident of Central Washington myself, I can really relate to the places that that he roams and patrols. Gotta ask you, there's a new series that's come out called Joe Pickett that's about a game Mm -hmm. warden in Wyoming who coincidentally has a lab that goes with him. Were you consulted about this or did they just plain rip you off? (laughs) Well... Actually, that's based on C.J. Box's series of books, and he's been writing long, long, long time before me. But I, uh, I think that for the TV show, they just threw the dog in there. I don't think in his books he travels with a dog. So it's just more than anything, it's a coincidence. You know, luckily, my books came out before the Joe Pickett TV show came out. So it's kind of a coincidence. C.J. Box has, you know, sold millions of books, and he's got millions of fans around the world. And someday I aspire to have that kind of success. But I tried not to read his books because I don't want to have my ideas fogged up by anything that he's written or done. So I, I stay away from, well, I stay away from reading a lot of books while I'm writing. So it's all my own ideas from my own little warped little mind so <laughs> uh, for what it's worth it's not that warped and uh, <laughs> you know i haven't read his books but i can tell you the producers of the television show it's one of the most unrealistic depictions of a game warden i have ever ever seen so i'll just leave oh. it at that i'm sure his books are better but uh, the tv yeah. people they're not well, doing any justice like i said you see him everywhere TV. in grocery stores and department stores Creature of the Cascades. This is about Luke McCain, and he is involved trying to track down some poachers, but he's also investigating a potential Sasquatch attack on some dogs. Tell us a little bit more about this story in this book. Yeah, well, I've got some friends that, you know, are good buddies and real fans, readers, and they said, you know, you should put Bigfoot in one of your books, and I kind of laughed it off, and then I got to thinking, you know, why not? 
put something in there. And so, yeah, the, the book starts out where they're finding animals skewered on branches and trees, you know, 15 feet up off the ground. And all of a sudden, the rumors start roar, roaring that it's a, a Bigfoot that, that is killing uh, goats and dogs and coyotes and deer and snagging them up into trees. And they can't find any tracks. And so anyway, uh, my guy kind of gets put on the case, and he's trying to figure out who's killing these animals, both domestic and wild, and putting them in the trees and trying to decide if it really is Bigfoot or not. And it was a fun story to write, and I've got lots of good, fun characters in it. And if you read it, you'll find out if Bigfoot's doing that, the damage or not. Well, I'm a ways into the book, and I've enjoyed it so far. Uh, I was thinking that it was a moose, but you told me it's not a moose that did this. So I'll find out at the end of the book whether it is Bigfoot or not. In the meantime, though, you know, I've never really had this discussion on the air about Bigfoot. Obviously, you know, he is definitely tied to the Pacific Northwest. So many stories about Sasquatch, Bigfoot. And, and you and I have got a couple of mutual friends that swear they have had encounters with him. One of them, a game warden here in the Pacific Northwest, who's since passed. And I remember him telling me that he literally was in 35 yards of one of these creatures, and he knows what he saw, and he's absolutely convinced that he saw a Sasquatch. I mean, personally, from a, a scientific point of view, I'm saying, where's the evidence? You know, where's how come we never found a body? But, you know, it, it kind of makes you think when you have people that you respect and trust, and they tell you these stories that, I don't know, maybe such a creature exists. Yeah, well, it's it's been, you know, the speaking of the natives and uh, tribes around the Northwest, they all have stories about Bigfoot and, you know, passed down from generation to generation. And, and so, you know, it just makes you think there must be something to this. But so far, I'm kind of like you. I've, you know, there, we, there's a million trail cameras out there. How come somebody's not, you know, caught one on a trail camera or they get, you know, every animal from a moose down to a, a mouse gets hit by a car. Why hasn't a Bigfoot ever been hit by a vehicle, you know? So you just wonder. But, you know, people have uh, explanations for all of those things, and and there are believers. And it seems to be on the uptick again. I'm more and more I find out about it, there's just so much stuff going on with Bigfoot and people engaged in it. And there's you'll see stickers on cars and T-shirts and hats, and which I think is great. You know, I, I told you this story off the air. I was exhibiting at the Central Oregon Sportsman Show a few years back, and I just happened to be set up right next to a guy selling all sorts of Bigfoot memorabilia. And the entire weekend, he was bombarded with visitors who wanted to tell their personal Sasquatch encounters. Some of them, I heard something right by the campsite, and I, I'm sure it was Bigfoot, but other ones were, were pretty epic stories, let's put it that way, with lots, yeah. lots of description, yeah. and, and uh, a lot of people out there are convinced they've had encounters with this animal, so who knows? But in the meantime, read the book, Creature of the Cascades, a Luke McCain novel. When is this coming out? It'll be released on December 9th. Pre-order it now on Amazon if you want, and you know it'll be in local bookstores. You can order it through Barnes and Noble and Goodreads, BookBub, several places like that. So yeah, I just tell people they're a fun, easy read. It doesn't take a long time to read my books. They're not epics that take forever. They're fairly quick reads. They're fun, and I think people enjoy it whether they believe in Bigfoot or not. It'll be uh, well, maybe we'll answer a few questions in this book. There you go, Creature of the Cascades, the sixth of the Luke McCain novels coming out in early December. It'll be a great Christmas gift. Look for it on Amazon.com or bookstores near you. It's by Rob Phillips. Rob, 
Thanks, as always, for sharing this with us on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. You bet, John. Thank you so much. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter with the gear you need for fishing, hunting, camping, paddling, cooking, and just about anything else you can do in the woods or in the water. With over 125 stores across America, there is bound to be a Sportsman's Warehouse near you with not only the gear you need, but also the experts to help you get the most out of the product you purchase. Head down to your local Sportsman's Warehouse today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. That's sportsmans.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio and to an extended Max Minute, brought to you by Max Lur. Next up, we've got Brianna Bruce on the line. You'll find her on Wednesdays at the Sportsman's Warehouse in Everett in the fishing department, but every other day of the week, you can usually find her on the water fishing for salmon and more. Brianna, welcome back to the show. Always good to be here, John. I've got to ask, you're actually not fishing right now. You are out elk hunting. How is it going for your group? Pretty good. We've got one in camp so far, and we've seen a couple others. I put a couple good stocks on some elk yesterday, but just couldn't quite connect with a spike. That's all right. You've still got a little bit of time, and I wish you luck in that regard. Let's talk about the fishing, because you've been on the Snohomish River catching coho, and you've been doing it with a a new lure from Max Lure. Tell me about this. So we've been using the SE Drift Jig, which is a jig, and it's got a wire that attaches to it with a smile blade on it. And that actually slows the fall rate a little bit. So a lot of times when those fish are pretty, you know, they're starting to get a little sluggish or if they're getting a little skittish, that seems to have helped a little bit and has gotten us some more fish. How was the fishing overall in the Snohomish in October? Fishing has been really, really good. We've been getting, like, shots of rain kind of timed out perfect, where when it starts to slow down, when the water's been getting low and clear, we get a little shot of rain, and it really amps those fish back up. And the fishing's been really good. It's one of the best years I've seen since probably 2013. Oh, that is great to hear. Now, once you get back from elk camp, you're heading to the Skagit River. And what part of the river do you fish there? I like to fish around Cedro Woolly mostly, but I'll fish anywhere from Burlington all the way up to Concrete and sometimes even above there. Are you going to be twitching jigs there as well, or are you also throwing spinners too? So I like to twitch jigs, and especially kind of the later into the year we get, the better the twitching bite gets. But we also throw spinners, and I really like casting and retrieving plugs like the Brad's Wiggle Wart. Interesting. I'm used to the spinners, used to the twitching jigs. Haven't heard of casting plugs before, but nice to have another tool in the toolbox, so to speak. And they're super easy to fish. I really like it, especially when I have clients that haven't fished before. It's really easy. You cast out and you just reel them back in. You can reel them almost, you know, as fast as you can reel them, and those fish will just slam them. And then if you stop reeling, you know, a lot of times we see some wildlife, like some elk and some deer on the river. If you're focusing on something else and you stop reeling, they float, so you lose a lot less of them. There you go. All right. Always good to hear from you, Bree. And folks, if you want to go fishing with Brianna Bruce on the Skagit River for Coho Salmon this month, just go to our Facebook page. You'll find it at Livin' No G Life Adventures. That's Livin' Life Adventures. Or go to our website at livinlifeadventures.com. Bree, good luck on the elk hunt. Thanks, John. 
I'm Bob Loomis and I fish for walleye. Sometimes when I'm out on the water, I feel like a destroyer captain hunting for targets with my electronics. I'm not hunting submarines though, I'm hunting fish. And when I find that big one on the fish finder, I want to make sure she's going to bite. That's where the Smileblade Slow Death Rig from Max Lure comes in. The Smileblade spins and flashes at ultra-slow speeds, and the one-of-a-kind red hook keeps that bait moving in a way the fish can't resist. It's the Smileblade Slow Death Rig, only from Max Lure. You're back in with America Outdoors Radio. I'm John Cruz. We've got Andrew McKean on the line. He's a hunting and conservation editor for Outdoor Life, and he just penned what I consider to be the best conservation article I have ever read. It is all about bison, buffalo, and how they almost went extinct in the 1800s here in America, and our efforts to bring them back and why those efforts have fallen short. Andrew, welcome back to the show. John, thanks for having me. This is fun. This is not just fun. This is a fascinating story. And your article actually starts off in the 1880s at a location in eastern Montana, not far from where you live, that was the site of the last big buffalo hunt. Tell our listeners about this and, and why this hunt occurred. Yeah, it was actually it was a fascinating hunt, and in some ways, I wish I could have peeled back the layers of time and, and participated in it because it was it was a very intentional hunt. So this is 1886, and if you think about that time, so we've got railroads are already stabbing across the northern plains. We've got gold camps in the mountains. We've got you know the first homesteaders are following the open range. So the West is getting settled, and one of the victims of that was free ranging bison or buffalo that were you know getting pushed into increasingly sort of marginal habitat. And one of the fellows who was interested in kind of the deeper meaning of that was a guy named William Temple Hornaday. Not the Hornady of, uh, of Nebraska bullet fame, but this was a guy who was actually the chief taxidermist at the Smithsonian Institution in Washington, D.C. And one of the real grandfathers of the American conservation movement. He and Teddy Roosevelt and George Bird Grinnell were instrumental in forming uh, the Boone and Crockett Club and, and really the early leaders of restoring America's wildlife. But, but William Temple Hornaday could kind of look forward a little bit and say, man, we're about to lose this species. And it's interesting, just one of the, I think, signs of the times, the reaction was not to conserve habitat or to kind of do all of, they'll you know, have regulatory protections, all of the things that we might do in the modern age of conservation. Instead, you know, he's a taxidermist. He's like, I am going to go and bag the last of the buffalo and at least preserve the living memory of them in hides and skulls, and I'm going to bring them back to the Smithsonian Institution. So with six other hunters, I might have been seven other hunters, he arranged an expedition into remote eastern Montana, like you said, John, not that far from where I live in the northeastern corner of the state. So this would have been along the Muscleshell River to the southwest of me, into this really gnarly, badlandy, adobe, scoured country, which is where buffalo had been pushed because they really couldn't exist in some of the more fertile areas or areas where the railroads had come. And anyway, at about this time of year, it was uh, late November, December, he and his party set up camp for three or four weeks and just, <laughs> I, I visited the site, and it is not a very hospitable place. And, and they cast out from there on day hunts, and they ended up killing a couple dozen bison, including one of the biggest bulls on record, and took most of the hides and skulls and kind of pieces and parts back to the Smithsonian Institution. And those then became 
part of a really important and, and well-regarded exhibit that was basically a museum piece of bison. So for much of the last century, America's relationship with bison was as taxidermy. Very interesting story about the, the last great buffalo hunt there. So at this point, the buffalo was almost extinct. But, you know, conservationists in the early 1900s started working to bring them back. And today we've got, you know, remnant populations in places like Yellowstone, Grand Teton National Park, the Blackfeet Tribal Reservation, the National Bison Range, which is now managed by the Salish and Kootenai tribes. But overall, we've been unable to bring the bison back in the numbers that they were before. And we're talking about millions of bison that roam the prairie. Why is that? We've been able to bring back species like the white-tailed deer and wild turkey, but we can't seem to bring the bison back. What's the main impediment to that? Yeah, I mean, that was really the origin point of my story, was looking across sort of the larger landscape of restoration of wildlife. And, you know, we as hunters, uh, I think, reasonably and, and rightly congratulate ourselves for all of the work that we have done to bring back these iconic species. But, but bison is really, a, I think, a remarkable story in what we have not been able to achieve. And some of it is has to do with some of that early, I guess, early reaction to keeping the genome or, you know, keeping them uh, as a viable uh, biological specimen or species, because they're so close in behavior and habitat to cattle, we made an early decision, and Hornady was one of them. He actually adopted a buffalo calf, named it Sandy, took it back to Washington, D.C., where it lived in a pasture on the, the National Mall by the Smithsonian Institution. Wow. And that, that tendency to treat buffalo, wild buffalo, like livestock, it's been a through line of this whole discussion. And so we actually do have, if you were going to enumerate the number of bison in America, it's rising every year. We're not to the level of the many millions of free-ranging buffalo that we had, you know, uh, century and a half ago. But in terms of buffalo on the landscape, there are more than in recent times. Unfortunately, they're almost all behind fences. Uh, and in my home state of Montana, in fact, they have a dual classification of both livestock and wildlife. They're managed not by the Department of Fish, Wildlife, and Parks, but by the Department of Livestock. And so that's been one of the impediments to full restoration of a wild population is they are really looked at as domestic livestock more than they are wildlife. And the second thing is, and this is something that a couple of sources pointed out in my story, we just do not any longer have the extensive, unfenced, unaltered landscapes that buffalo require to live sort of at their ecological best, which is widely roaming migratory grazers. But there is an organization that is trying to fix that through a public and private land conservation effort, American Prairie. And this is an organization that is kind of a lightning rod. You either love what they're doing or you hate what they're doing. Tell our listeners about what they're doing and how buffalo slash bison are a big part of it. Boy, you framed it really well. It is a polarizing group. And this area I live in in eastern Montana can seem sort of lonely and forgotten in a lot of ways, but there is so much happening here in terms of conservation and uh, these big picture uh, things. So American Prairie exists to the west of here, sort of in north-central Montana, but their idea is to manage and control up to 5 million acres of prairie through a combination of buying private ranches or ranches with private land that have an associated BLM public land lease with it. And so by doing that, they can start to influence huge chunks of country. What their real intention is, is to restore the native grassland ecosystem. 
what they told me in the context of the story. So they've got a buffalo herd that's growing and very intensively managed and intentionally managed to someday be, you know, this widely roaming kind of quasi-wild herd. What they told me is, hey, we are not a buffalo project. We are a grassland project. And we have buffalo because they're agents of grassland change and ecology, which which I get. You know, you read all these historical narratives of how buffalo would move across the landscape and create wallows and have intensive grazing patterns that allowed all sort of the, the other food chains of wildlife on the prairie to exist. And so that's what American Prairie is doing. But you nailed it. They are very polarizing. You either think that they're disruptive and, uh, and unwelcome visitors to a, a place that is really through livestock grazing, has done a pretty good job of ecological restoration, or you think that they are great heroes that are going to really bring back not only buffalo, but in time probably prairie wolves and grizzly bears and all of the other occupants of the prairie that Lewis and Clark saw when they came through here in 2003 to 2005. Well, if you don't mind, Andrew, I'd like you to stick around because we've got more to dive into on the subject. It was an extensive article, and we are not finished with this story yet. Can you hang around? Okay, I certainly can. Come to Oregon's Wallowa County for outdoors adventure. Hike, ride, paddle, fish, or sightsee to your heart's content. And then visit one of our wonderful towns, whether it be Joseph with its beautiful bronze statues, our county seat in Enterprise, or one of our charming small towns like Wallowa, Imnaha, or Troy, where you can eat, shop, and sleep before continuing your adventure the next day. Plan your visit now at WallowaCountyChamber.com. That's WallowaCountyChamber.com. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Welcome back to Northwestern Outdoors Radio, and welcome back to our conversation with Andrew McKean about trying to restore buffalo to the landscape of America, especially on our prairies. We just told you about the efforts of American Prairie, a nonprofit organization that's uh, quite a lightning rod when it comes to what they're trying to do to restore prairie grasslands to Montana and the buffalo along with it. But there's other impediments to restoring bison as well. And surprisingly, one of those impediments has to do with the politicians in Montana. They are dead set against restoring bison, and so are livestock owners. And it all comes down to a disease called brucellus. Tell us what this is. Yeah, so brucellosis is a a real virulent disease that can spread easily. What it is is it's called undulant fever. And basically, if, if if a pregnant cow, bison cow, gets it, 
often passes on to, they often abort their fetus, but sometimes it exists in the landscape in terms of their afterbirth, after giving birth. It can easily pass on to cattle. And then a brucellosis infected herd is quarantined. It cannot be sold or passed through state lines. And so it's a big existential threat to the livestock industry. I might add here that brucellosis actually originated in livestock and then was passed to buffalo that are now sort of harboring it because they're not vaccinated at the same rate as domestic cattle. But regardless of the origin, it is a big deal. And so, for instance, in Yellowstone National Park, we've got you know, kind of the last remnant herd of wild bison. Brucellosis is pretty prevalent within that population to the degree that there's a lot of vaccination. Any time a buffalo leaves the, the boundaries of the park, they're tested. If they're captured before anything else happens to them. So it's definitely a real issue. What I would observe, though, is it, it is a manageable issue, and it's one that I think is, is being used as an impediment to stop any kind of restoration efforts, even though I might look with my eyes crossed and say, eh, we've done hard things in the past. I think we can probably solve the resources question. So the other issue, and you alluded to this earlier, is that in Montana, you know, bison are not considered a wild animal like a deer or an elk or a pronghorn. They're considered livestock. And that's had real implications on the recovery of this species. And again, in, in getting back to, to politics, I presume livestock owners are having quite a bit of influence on politicians who are, are making policies that are preventing the restoration of bison in the landscape. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, the resistance has sort of ratcheted up through the county commissions that have passed proclamations forbidding the transfer of wild bison across county lines to the legislature that has had all kinds of legislation that, that has basically stymied any effort to restore bison to, for instance, the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge, which is the second largest national wildlife refuge in the system and is bordering the American prairie to the south. There's been a lot of people who have looked at that landscape on the refuge as saying, well, that would be a pretty good place to establish a foothold for bison. But the legislature and then the governor and including our state congressman has put a rider on the farm bill that is still working its way through our crippled Congress right now to prohibit funding for any kind of bison restoration on the, the CMR, as the Charles M. Russell Wildlife Refuge is called. So, I mean, they've got institutional resistance kind of at every turn. And, and you're probably heading down this direction. So one of the interesting things about this story that I was kind of diving into is it's almost like there's, there's pressure at the seams. You know, and anything that's pressurized is going to find a way to kind of work away to pediments. And one of the things I think is fascinating about this story is the American Indian population. And, and in Montana, we've got eight reservations and a number of recognized tribes. And, you know, all the way across the northern plains, there is a lot of energy in Indian country to bring back bison which is just kind of a delicious irony when you look at a lot of the bison uh, removal back when, you know, we also had free-ranging Indian populations. And their sort of taming and, and put on reservations was concurrent with getting rid of the bison that they relied on. So there's been a long relationship, obviously, with the Northern Plains Native Americans and bison for a long time. And I think it's interesting that they are now, the tribes are saying, uh, give us a chance. We've got a long relationship with this animal, and we've got a lot of interest in bringing them back. And so I spent quite a bit of time on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation that is the recipient of a lot of the excess bison from Yellowstone Park. On the reservation there, they've got a big holding facility to quarantine animals, ensure their brucellosis is free, and then a certain percentage of those animals are then distributed to other Indian tribes on the northern plains to start to develop their own herds. So it's just kind of an interesting look at maybe a possible future of bison recovery. Do the tribes 
on their reservations have enough room to actually restore the bison to, to numbers like we've seen before? Or is it still going to have to be some sort of partnership with the federal government where we're putting them on these vast refuges like the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge? That's a very, very good question. So I will allude to a couple of different reservations that have I think, a couple of different ways of handling that. So on Fort Peck, the tribe that's receiving the Yellowstone bison, they've got a, a huge, I think it's about a 30,000-acre pasture, and it does have exterior fences. So you could say, well, this is still a fenced population of bison. What they've done is they've divided their herd into two parts. They've got a, what they call the, the business herd or the commercial herd, where they sell hunts to non-tribal members, and, and they basically treat it as sort of a commodity. And then they have their cultural herd, and what they do there is they use those bison for powwows and for ceremonies and for the more sort of, well, kind of sacred cultural parts of their religion and their culture that bison were a part of long before uh, white people showed up on the on the landscape. And so so that's one model where you've got a gigantic pasture where they're they're sort of managed intensively and, and intentionally. On the other side of the state there's the Blackfoot reservation that just released I think twenty some bison on their reservation. They do not have a fence on their western boundary that then conjoins with Glacier National Park. And I can I can blur my eyes a little bit and see into the future of those bison leaving Indian country and heading into the national park and establishing a footprint there. The same thing could happen in the Bob Marshall Wilderness to the south of the Blackfoot Indian Reservation. So, you know, bison are going to go where they want, which has always been part of their problem when it comes to, you know, moving across sort of a domesticated landscape. But it's going to be really interesting in the next you know, a couple of decades to see how they are both tolerated and how they expand naturally. Fascinating discussion. And folks, if you want to find out more, go to OutdoorLife.com. Check out the in-depth deep dive about bison recovery written by Andrew McKean. Again, probably the finest conservation article I have ever read in my life. Definitely worth a good read. Andrew, always a pleasure to have you on Northwestern Outdoors Radio. Well, the pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me, John. This portion of the show is brought to you by our friends at Cena Sea Seafood. That's a family-run company that catches wild-caught sustainable Alaskan salmon, halibut, rockfish, lingcod, sablefish, and more out of the cold waters of Alaska. They process it in Cordova, and they ship it in meal-sized portions directly to your doorstep. Not only do they deliver fish to your door, they also deliver shellfish. For example, right now they've got spot shrimp available, which are incredibly tasty, as well as crab cakes. Perfect appetizer for a meal. So, if you are looking at having a very special meal for the holidays, check out everything that Cena Sea Seafood has to offer and use the promo code OUTDOORSRADIO to get 10% off your order. The website to go to SenaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SenaSea.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter and has what you need as a hunter, angler, hiker, paddler, camper, and outdoors enthusiast. They also carry an extensive assortment of firearms and ammunition you simply can't find anymore at many big box stores. On top of that, their knowledgeable staff is here to help you purchase the right gear so you can get the most out of your outdoor experience. Visit your local Sportsman's Warehouse store today or shop online anytime at sportsmans.com. 
Looking for that extra something that will get more salmon or trout into your boat? Then check out the Double D Dodger from Max Lure. The Double D does double duty and helps you catch more fish. The Double D's flash attracts lunkers and the Dodger's patented stop-start action works wonders to get those fish biting. The Double D does even more by acting as a side planer to get your bait away from the boat where the fish are more likely to be and more apt to strike. The Double D Dodger, it's the Dodger you've got to have from Max Lure. Did you know we actually have a sponsorship opportunity available for this show? That's right. You can be a sponsor of Northwestern Outdoors Radio, reaching thousands of listeners every week, tuning in to 69 stations in seven states. If you have a business that caters to outdoors enthusiasts, this is the platform for you, and you're going to find it's much more affordable than you think. Contact me through my website at northwesternoutdoors.com, and let's get a conversation started. That's northwesternoutdoors.com. Nature at its finest. That's what you'll find in Northeast Oregon's Wallowa County. Paddle a kayak or go fishing at Wallowa Lake. Hike into the Eagle Cap Wilderness or soak in the views after taking the tram to the top of Mount Howard. Then take time to explore the towns of Joseph and Enterprise. No matter how you take in this country, you're sure to enjoy it. That's the beauty of Wallowa County. And that's why we're home to one of Oregon's seven wonders. Find out more at WallowaCountyChamber.com. Enjoy a meal of wild Alaskan seafood delivered right to your door. Sina Sea offers premium quality wild Alaskan fish and shellfish to include Copper River King and Silver Salmon, Halibut, Black Cod, King Crab, and of course, Copper River Sockeye Salmon. Order it blast frozen or smoked and experience a slice of Alaska for a special meal you won't forget. Buy your seafood now at SinaSea.com. That's S-E-N-A-S-E-A, SinaSea.com. Sportsman's Warehouse is America's premier outfitter, full of the gear you need to succeed this hunting season. Firearms, ammo, archery equipment, decoys, clothing, boots, and more. You'll find it all at Sportsman's Warehouse. Better still, the knowledgeable staff can help you with tips and in-store seminars, all designed to help you bag a trophy or a limit. Find a location near you or shop online today at sportsmans.com. Before we go today, we've got time for one last shot of Northwestern Outdoors Radio with your host, John Cruz. I'm glad you're back, and I've got some exciting news for you. I am getting a new puppy. As many of you know, I lost my Springer Spaniel, Georgia, last summer due to cancer, and I I sorely miss her, but it's time to get another puppy, and I am going with another Springer. Found a reputable breeder in Twin Falls. His name's Jim. He's the owner of New Day Springers, and I'll tell you what, it was hard to choose. There's some beautiful pups there. Liver and white, black and white, males and females, both available. But I told Jim I was looking for a hunting dog. And now the lines on these dogs, they're AKC registered, very good lines. And the sire of the litter is quite athletic, loves to retrieve, loves to chase after ducks. And the mama of the litter, well, she loves to swim. Put it all together, and I think if the genes turn out right, I might be in for a good duck dog. So I let Jim help me out with a choice there. And... 
He says the one that's wearing the blue collar that he calls Blue Collar Boy. That would probably be the best bet for me. So in 10 days, I am picking him up. I've already got a name picked out. It's going to be Sam, as in Yosemite Sam. And if that dog acts out and does silly things, which all puppies do, yep, I'll be calling that puppy an idiot. So if you are in the market for a Springer Spaniel puppy, well, check out New Day Springers on Facebook. See which puppies are left, and maybe you'll be getting one too either for the field or as a companion or both. All right, now let's turn our attention to your Sportsman's Warehouse trivia question of the week. I've been seeing quite a few geese on my walks out at Pothole State Park and driving around the Columbia Basin here in eastern Washington lately. Not only greater Canada geese, but also lesser Canada geese and quite a few snow geese too. Now, a lot of people call these groups of geese flocks, but that's not actually the correct term. And that's your question. What do you call a flock of geese? What is the correct name for a flock of geese? It's not flock. It's something else. If you know the answer, you know what to do. Just go to northwesternoutdoors.com and shoot us your answer there through our contact us page or just send me an email. You can do that by emailing john, J-O-H-N, at northwesternoutdoors.com. One lucky person who guesses right will win that $25 gift card we give away every week from America's Premier Outfitter. And on that note, it's time to go. I'd like to thank all of you this Veterans Day weekend that did serve in uniform or were part of a family that served because you're also sacrificing as a spouse or a kid or the parent of a service member too. Thanks for all who still wear the uniform and fight for our flag. And thanks for all of you who have already done your time doing the same thing. Until next time, take care, God bless, and make it a point to spend some time outdoors. Outdoors.